Welcome to Our Sick Society, a podcast series where researchers from King's College London and people with lived experience explore together how social factors contribute to mental health problems. I'm Lavinia. I'm Charlotte. I'm Sally. And I'm Gemma. And we'll all be bringing you episodes. But we'll also have some guest presenters inviting people who tell us their stories to investigate the issues that they're interested in as well as the ones that we think are important. We want to make you think and question society's role in mental health. What are the systems and the structures which mean some people are more likely to be mentally unwell than others? And crucially, what steps should society take from national government policies to local grassroots community organising? How can we cure our sick society? Hi, I'm Gemma. I'm a research associate at the Centre for Society and Mental Health at King's College London. I work in school-based research, trying to understand more about the impacts of social inequalities and social experiences on the mental health of young people. And there's a lot of interest at the moment in the role of schools in supporting and promoting young people's mental health. But what about the mental health of teachers? During my time in schools, one thing that's always struck me is the tireless dedication and commitment of teachers. It's a really demanding profession, even at the best of times, and often the teachers that we work with in our research are really stretched and overworked. And as an outsider looking in, it seems to me that the demands and pressures on school staff have increased in recent months during the pandemic. So in this episode, I'll be speaking with a range of people who work, study and do research in schools to find out how work life has changed for school staff during the pandemic, what impact, if any, these changes have had on the mental health of school staff, and most importantly, what needs to change to alleviate pressure and protect the well-being of school staff now and in the coming months. But first, what did we know about the mental health of teachers and other school staff before the pandemic? There's a fair amount of research on this, and it seems to paint a quite consistent picture. Teaching is tough, it's one of the most emotionally demanding professions, and teachers are more likely to experience mental health problems compared with the working population as a whole. I had a chat with Lisa, a lecturer in education and psychology at the University of York, who told me about some of the things that contribute to poor emotional well-being among teachers in this country, and the implications for teacher retention. In England, I think the topic of workload has been quite prominent when we are talking about teacher wellbeing. So working hours is an indication of workload and teachers in England have the highest reported working hours compared to the international counterparts and the numbers have not decreased for 15 years. And high workload is one of the primary reasons teachers are leaving the profession. In terms of the statistics regarding attrition. So more than 10% leave within one year of qualifying and 30% of teachers leave within five years. So I think this is quite an important topic to talk about. Okay, so this was the situation before the pandemic. So what's changed for school staff since then? In a second, we'll hear from Caroline, a secondary school teacher and pastoral lead at a state school in inner city London. But first, for context, it might be helpful to know that I'm recording this episode at the start of February 2021. Um, so at the moment, we're in the third national lockdown in England, and most schools are physically closed to most students and most teaching is being done online. 
The conversation with young people, which you'll hear later in the episode, was recorded just before the Christmas break, at which point most schools were still physically open to most pupils. And it might also be worth mentioning that this is my first go at making a podcast, so anything that isn't very slick in this episode is my doing and not the people that I interviewed. Anyway, enough for me. Here's Caroline with, first, a broad picture of how things have played out for her and her colleagues over the last 10 months. Well, there are clearly um, three phases. So we had our initial lockdown phase uh, back in March 2020, and that was a scramble for paper resources. Um, How do we do all of this online business? Very steep learning curve. And I think also when we went into it, we thought we were coming out of it quite quickly and we had to settle down into some different ways of working, most definitely, but also different ways of looking after our young people. Then we had summer when things seemed to be going a lot more smoothly and then came September and bubbles. Now bubbles are quite interesting but we managed actually. We have managed and that that I would say that that autumn term given the circumstances, given the fairly rigid protocols we all had to follow in terms of cleaning procedures, distancing, ventilation, etc., did change all of our lives quite considerably, it must be said. Um, but given all of that, I think um, balance that that autumn term was fairly successful. And then, ooh, what was it, the day just before the Christmas holiday started, we learned that things were going to be very different in the spring term Um, and indeed there have been now we've gone in to spring term I would say with a number of advantages we're all a lot more tech savvy we all know how to deliver lessons and and so forth Um, but this time round, it has felt I would say much more isolated it has felt harder everything is being done online as opposed to back in uh, the March and, and sort of summer term So this spring term, I know um, I have colleagues and and, myself as well who have been struggling with the anxiety and the stress of sitting in front of a screen pretty much nonstop from dawn until dusk. And that really is what it feels like. We've all got teaching in our DNA. We want to do the best by our young people. We want to maintain high standards in terms of the quality of the teaching, the quality of the learning. And, and how we go about all the other things that take place, you know, in a, a normal face-to-face lesson. We've got to do the marking, etc. But it's very different. Would you say then that overall teachers' workload has increased during the pandemic compared with before the pandemic? And is burnout a concern? It's undoubtedly more work since COVID has been in our lives. That is whether you're in school or not. As I said, I have a pastoral role and I found myself in the autumn term, every spare minute I had when I wasn't teaching, I would be out down a break, I would be out at lunch, making sure bubbles were kept separate, making sure everybody was all right. It felt constant, it really did. Now it's constant, but in a different way. You know, I think my computer screen has become my, not my best friend, it's almost my only friend at the minute. Sounded sad, sorry about that. But, you know, I mean, I know people are very worried about, I mean, these teachers, our teachers, we're all parents as well, a lot of us, or many of us are parents. So they're working at home, so they're juggling the live lessons, which is the kind of, I would say, one of the major gains that we've made since the first um, March lockdown. Things are live, and that is a real step in the right direction in terms of student engagement. But you've got your partner working at home as well, maybe. And some of our you know, teachers have got young children 
whose own schools are closed. So they're trying to teach their own classes, keep out of the way of their partner who's also in meetings or doing whatever job they're doing, plus shoehorn in a bit of homeschooling too. It's very difficult. I mean, when did you last get a a day off? (laughs) Wow. Um, You do have to take them. I mean, I mean, I always make one of my days at the weekend a day off where I catch up with, well, the little things of life that you can do at the moment. I do try and get out to the shops occasionally. But yeah, I I mean, it's a a lot of working hours. I mean, one day this week, I was still on my computer at nine o'clock at night. I know colleagues are as well. I know it's a big issue for them. You know, on top of the live element of teaching, you've got all the extra time. I mean, yes, you may have resources. You may be, you know, you may have a super duper PowerPoint about teaching, let's say, I don't know, volcanoes, but it won't necessarily deliver itself. You have to adapt it. You have to do extra research and produce other resources for the students to um, get involved with so that it's suitable for remote learning. I don't know what it is about remote learning. I haven't really put my finger on it, but it just generates more marking than normal teaching does. And I think that we all feel, you know, an absolute duty, but also, you know, a desire to make sure that marking gets done, because in a way it's, it's almost one of the only ways that we've got of communicating. You know, a lot of it's online. So whatever comments you put on a Word document, you know, your, your students done you an essay, then they can see all of those things. And, you know, you, you can give them that extra feedback. So it, it's doubly important in a way. I mean, I, I know I've got colleagues who work part time and more and more of them are finding that they're using those days which are technically off to plan and, and to work and to catch up on marking. So, you know, it's, it's affecting everyone. Would you say that overall there's been a significant impact on emotional well-being and mental health of teachers and perhaps of the school staff as a result of the changes to your work that have arisen due to the pandemic? I think unquestionably there has been an impact. I think while we have been in school, there has been an anxiety about the protocols, about are we doing them properly, about are the children doing them properly, Um, are we going to catch COVID? Being a teacher doesn't exempt you from that fear. And some of my colleagues have had COVID. Some of them have had it more than once. um, And some have had to go in hospital with it. And I think... One of the good things about the current lockdown is that the anxiety of catching COVID has gone because we are working from home. But many of us are worried about what will happen come March. Um, And then we've got this date, you know, March the 8th being bandied around. What is actually going to happen? It feels more serious than it did back in March because we've got this UK variant, because there's the South African variant. And now we're talking about the Brazilian one. I know friends and colleagues in school are worried about what that is going to look like. You know, classrooms don't have expandable walls. You can't just suddenly allow everyone to sit two metres apart. You know, what is that going to look like? And and yes, we we are worried. And I, I know there is a feeling that we're not getting enough recognition or acknowledgement from the government that teachers are at a higher risk of catching covid than perhaps other um, members of the population or the working population. And there's a feeling that we should be vaccinated and, and maybe get our double vaccination um, before we go back to school. So, so that is a, a definite fear. 
I'm happy to um, share the fact that, you know, while preparing to talk to you, I, I reached out to colleagues and I said, you know, oh, going to be having a chat about mental health for teachers um, this afternoon. And, you know, is there anything you want to share? Obviously, you know, won't be naming any names. I was deluged and couldn't believe it you know, from people who are isolated from their family abroad, who haven't seen, you know, brothers, sisters, parents for over a year, who, because their family's abroad, but they're living with people who are in the UK, those, you know, flatmates go off when there are breaks and, and they're left alone. I've got another colleague who I've always considered to be one of the chirpiest teachers ever, who says she's now struggling with anxiety for the first time in her life and is seeking therapy. This really shocks me. You know, when I see those people, it's an immense strain. I mean, I think you want their well-being, you want the students' well-being, and you, you're constantly thinking about that, and quite often at the detriment of your own. And, you know, like I said, we, we get very snappy. We start losing our patience, you know, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed every single morning, day in, day out, gets to be a strain. Is there any evidence to suggest that, or, or perhaps just from your own experience, if, if there's no evidence to back it up, are any particular groups of teachers more impacted than others in terms of their mental health and well-being? Well, firstly, I would say I think um, everybody at every level is going to have some degree of stress and, and additional worry due to, to this current situation. And that includes the senior leadership team as well, who have you know, undoubtedly got one of the most difficult jobs out there. Um, they're getting such short notice and they're having to move mountains in, in a very short space of time. And I can only imagine the level of stress that that is um, causing for them. I will say that right back in March 2020, um, a lot of my BAME colleagues were particularly concerned about their own personal situation which still needs to be taken into account. There needs to be more done for them, I think. And if you're comfortable doing so, could you could you tell us a bit about your own experiences with your, your own well-being and mental health over the last few months? So the um, I think the autumn term was a an interesting but a, a really stressful one for me. I find it really difficult, that term. As a pastoral leader, I was constantly available and I felt I had to be available to be out at break and at lunch, to be checking up on students in the classrooms when I wasn't actually um, teaching face-to-face, -face, and it wore me down. Um, I got to a stage, I'd, I'm, I'm not one of those people who often has um, time, you know, off sick or whatever, but there was one occasion when I found myself speaking to a colleague in a way I was ashamed of. I was so fraught, uh, so worn out, that I've really snapped at somebody. And I went home that evening and I thought to myself, this, this isn't right. Um, you are not well. And I couldn't call up and say, I'm afraid I've got, I had diarrhea overnight or I was feeling sick or I've got a bad cold. It wasn't any of those things. So I just called in and I said, I'm sorry, I'm not well. And I wasn't. And it was mentally unwell. And I think it was quite a step for me, it was quite cathartic to be able to actually even admit that. And I had to take two days off school. And in those two days, I just put a bit of distance between myself and the situation. And so I took those two days off and was quite open with my line manager when I came back and said, 
this is why I was unwell. Um, I was unwell in my head. I was unwell emotionally and I needed to stand back. And it really helped, I think, just that admission and also getting things into perspective. Okay, you're not there for break on one particular day. Well, that's fine. You know, you have to deal with it. You cannot do everything. You can't. Perfection does exist somewhere, but you also have to admit that okay can be enough as well. And that was a that was quite a steep learning curve for me because I have this, you know, um, perfectionist trend, as it were. Yeah, that that was hard. That was hard. And you don't want to do it. And you know, and you don't like appearing weak um, or not able to cope. Okay, so, so far we've heard a lot about the demands and impacts on teaching staff, but how have things been for non-teaching staff? There are about a million people working in schools in the UK. Around half of them are qualified teachers, around a quarter are teaching assistants, and around a quarter are support staff, which includes roles like non-teaching pastoral support. Non-teaching staff are integral to the running of schools and the development and education of young people, but are often an afterthought when we talk about mental health in schools. I'm particularly interested to find out how things have been for non-teaching pastoral staff, who spend most of their time trying to support and protect the most vulnerable young people in society. And I suspect that doing this in a virtual world and with all the changes that have happened in schools over the last year brings new challenges to an already demanding role. I spoke with Gemma, a non-teaching pastoral lead and wellbeing practitioner at an alternate provision school for young people who've been excluded from mainstream education. I asked her whether she'd noticed a decline in her own emotional wellbeing and mental health during the pandemic or that of her colleagues because of their work. So that's a really interesting one because while I would say that it, there has been a decline because the pandemic is, is something no one's experienced in essence, if I'm really honest, from a professional judgment, we don't tend to get supported dealing about secondary trauma. Although I've got a grasp of 15 years plus in education, that term was never used in anywhere I've worked. I learned about that externally. And my question, I guess, since learning about it is, well, if I've been in schools and that's never been a topic of discussion for staff, are staff even aware of what that looks like in terms of how it Manifest is very similar to post-traumatic stress. Um, and I think sometimes with non-teaching, there's an element that people go, oh, it's a, it has an expiry date. But actually, on looking at it, the reason why it has an expiry date because people are suffering from secondary trauma and not aware of it. And I think in this pandemic, I've been speaking to a lot of non-teaching staff, and again, there hasn't been any support. There's been no supervision. So I think there has been a decline because, again, it's been new, but no different in the elements of almost like expectation because we're expected to get on with it because we don't teach. So you don't teach, so you can do that. You can you can speak to the kids, you can come in, you can, you know, whereas like, for example, now all teachers are at home, all non-teaching are in school because it's like, well, you don't teach. But actually the, the demand mentally when you're delivering a lesson that is just talking about a, a topic and actually when you're dealing with very vulnerable and traumatic experiences it's quite heavy on the brain um I think first pandemic we were just lucky in the sense of because of maybe my experience with well-being and understanding secondary trauma now I was better placed to support my team but in all honesty that came from me that didn't come from someone saying to me I believe that this is what we should do in other schools I wonder if 
that's been the same process in some schools i know it has in some schools it, it hasn't but yeah so i'd say there's definitely been some elements of it being a bit more challenging but then equally i think not having the element of taking the students out of the lesson when you maybe thought is that the best choice that pressure hasn't been there um and actually from a non-teaching side that's a huge weight always on pastoral mind because it's something you feel you can't really challenge because it breeds a you're undermining teachers and and and, and you know the, the school system so i think having elements that wasn't present also helped so it's almost like it just balanced it out if that makes sense that's kind of just my general feeling about it anyway and and obviously talking to you we're mostly interested in the uh, what what the situation's been like for um non-teaching staff and the impacts on their mental health um but i, I guess you also work closely with teachers have things been more difficult for teaching staff during the pandemic what do you think the you know does that have any impact on their mental health and what do you think are the main the main pressure points i've always been shocked with how well-being for me although i'm i'm, I'm non-teaching i'm a big advocate on the demand on teaching staff and it's been horrific from what I've seen, if I'm honest with you. I, I've seen teachers from, from all different schools. They've had bereavements. Some some have lost their parents. And there was an element of, okay, you're in school now. Get on with the day. Again, people put on a brave face. and But actually, when you talk to them, they're really struggling. You know, I knew, I've had people open up and, and reach out to me directly about domestic violence or strained relationships. And it's really sad because it's like, while it's a humbling because you feel like you could reach out to me, it's they don't really don't feel that they could go to their employers. And, you know, having conversations and you say why, a lot of people actually feel like it's not a priority. And I've always said I'm quite direct. I can have that conversation with anybody regardless of title. But people don't come to work for conflicts. During this the whole of this pandemic, I've seen that a lot of teaching staff is that they're almost, in my eyes, suffering in silence. And also... The first pandemic, I guess this applied to everybody, but uh, obviously we had the magnifying um, event of the Black Lives Matters. And what I noticed with a lot of teaching staff was it was really traumatic because actually what it did for teaching staff, and, and, and I would definitely say non-teaching staff too, but what came across to me, non-teaching staff, we have these conversations all the time, regardless. Whereas with teaching staff, there's such a demand on their normal role. The conversations that were taking place first pandemic was almost enlightening because it's like, oh, didn't know that that's what you had been thinking and feeling all this time. Um, and in essence, had a lot of emotional conversations with teachers across different schools, which was very eye-opening. Um, and again, the same conversation. How well did you feel that was supported? Has anybody asked you, how did you feel within that time? And actually, the general consensus was a letter was put out in a lot of schools. We support, we stand together, we're here if you need but nothing was put in place. So that, you know, and, and as I said, from non-support staff, you kind of go, okay, I'm used to it. But from a teacher's perspective, I think it was more detrimental to them because they're just in their normal day of, I'm so busy, I've got to mark, I've got to plan, I've got to do all of this. And actually, well, actually, I've, I've been ignoring a lot of, of my actual feelings of what I think about things. You know, for, I'd say, Black teachers or, or Asian teachers, there's a lot that they had voiced to me that they... They had been feeling or wanting to have a conversation and almost felt like they had a voice, but still didn't feel like they could say some stuff. So speaking with Caroline and Gemma, it seems pretty clear based on their experiences and those of their colleagues that there are additional pressures and demands on school staff now compared with before the pandemic. 
And for some of them, at least, there are potential negative impacts on their emotional well-being. I asked Sarah from Place to Be whether there's any empirical data to back any of this up and whether she's seen any of this play out in her own work, for example, in increased demand for the services that Place to Be offer around supporting teachers' mental health. Yeah, I'm going to refer a little bit to a research piece that Education Support carried out this in 2020, which followed up a research piece that they did two years before, I think. It's around teacher well-being and shows quite clearly some of the impact of the, the pandemic. Their findings were that nearly two-thirds of education professionals describe themselves as stressed. And I, I want to just sort of highlight that stress is a different experience for lots of different people. And senior leaders in particular in schools were experiencing the highest levels of stress this time around. Um, so 77% is what they found. And long working hours was a lot to do with that. They also looked at symptoms of well-being, and I think this is quite interesting. Um, things like difficulty concentrating insomnia and tearfulness and that for teachers those symptoms were much higher than for the general population so in the general population that that would be 19% they found and that's from the Office of National Statistics and for teachers that was 32% so there is something about the, the vulnerability of that group to mental health issues Two of the things that we've done, so we used to deliver face-to-face training and obviously we aren't able to do that anymore. We had already been working on an online programme for, it was initially for trainee teachers or student teachers, just an introduction to mental health so that they're going into the classroom with some, some understanding of how mental health works and what you can do to support positive mental health. And we adapted that for teachers we sought funding. We have had so far 25,000 teachers go through that programme this school year. And a lot of the feedback we're getting is around um, they don't have a space for looking after their own mental health. And this programme is not it wasn't originally designed for that. But what they're finding is that the, the space to reflect on their own mental health is really valuable to them in this time. One of our other programmes is the small group supervision which I will say a little bit more about later because I think supervision isn't widely understood outside the social care or counselling professions and within that there's a a lot of the time they're not turning up because it's not okay to prioritise their own well-being there's always something more important than a teacher's well-being and when they are coming quite often find it very difficult to get into the space where they can reflect because they're so used to the do 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 that the just being is very very challenging and as I say that it has always been a challenging profession but we have seen levels of distress in the teachers that we work with that in higher numbers than we're used to. And I asked Lisa who we met earlier if she could tell us a bit about the research that her team have been doing during the pandemic and what they've been finding. Yeah, so um, funded by the ESRC, Dr. Catherine Asbury and I have been following the experiences of 24 state primary and secondary school teachers, and we've asked them what it has been like being a teacher during the COVID-19 pandemic. 
one of our interests was how their well-being may be changing throughout the pandemic. And so we asked them about their well-being at three time points. So in April, uh, which was around six weeks after the partial school closures, in mid-July, about which was about two weeks before the end of the academic year, and again in early November, which was around nine weeks into the new academic year. And what we found was that teachers' mental health and well-being, unfortunately, seemed to have declined throughout the pandemic, especially for primary SLTs. And we can try to understand why primary SLTs may have been affected, particularly throughout this pandemic. And it might be because of um, three factors. First is that in an SLT team in primary school, there's typically only one to three members within the SLT team. So the greater workload cannot be distributed as much as perhaps in secondary schools where there might be more people to distribute the workload. The second factor might be um, in primary schools, there's greater interactions with parents um, than in secondary school. So uh, therefore, it might be harder for them to do all that that needs to be done, as well as continue the great interaction that they have with the families. And the third is primary schools were asked to implement the kind of government changes that were asked of them a little bit earlier um, than secondary schools. So although secondary and primary schools were asked to do something at the same time, implementation were asked of the primary schools a little bit earlier, so they may have um, suffered as a result. And then thinking about um, the kind of job demands and job resources that teachers have experienced generally. For anyone not familiar with the acronym, SLT just means senior leadership team. So it's head teachers, deputy heads and so on. And Lisa went on to talk about some of the possible reasons for the declines in mental health and well-being among the teachers that they're working with. Um, but she also talked about some of the things that teachers have found to be protective for their mental health during the pandemic. So we identified that there were six job demands contributing negatively to teachers' mental health and well-being, and there were uncertainty, and that could be uncertainty about the situation, which heightened their anxiety about what to do and how to plan their workload accordingly, and, of course, increased workload. Uh, one quote from a teacher was that, I feel like I'm on overload. My brain feels like a browser with 100 tabs open. There's just so many things to think about all the time. So I think that is something that many of us may um, identify with. A third factor is negative perceptions of the profession. So um, many teachers said that people believe that teachers are not working or schools are closed. Therefore, yeah, they're just at home on full pay doing nothing. And so that also contributes to their um, well-being. Fourth factor is concern for others' well-being, and that is primary and secondary SLTs particularly concerned for the well-being of their staff and health struggles. So if people had previous health struggles or had new health struggles as a result of the pandemic, that also contributed to their well-being. And lastly, multiple roles. So aligning the expectations of what they should be doing as a teacher with parental expectation and SLT expectations. So those are the six job demands that they've been experiencing. In terms of the job resources, which contributed positively to their mental health and well-being, so social support, that is contact with others, definitely helped teachers and are helping teachers. Uh, work autonomy, which is a sense of increased flexibility and being in control of their work and situations. And lastly, coping strategies. So teachers were talking about new and existing coping strategies that they've used to help them maintain their mental health and well-being during the pandemic, including exercise or DOIs and meditation apps. Now, 
all of this is important, not just because of the direct impacts on the mental health and well-being of school staff, but also because there are potential knock-on effects for young people, as shown in research that's been done on this topic. These knock-on effects can include things like impacts on their relationships with their teachers, on their learning and motivation to learn, and on their well-being. As Gemma puts it, I mean, I have a motto and I came up with this about four years ago. If you can't do it for yourself, you can't do it for children. It's, it's just as simple as that. So what do young people think? Have they noticed a change in their teachers during the pandemic? Just before the Christmas break, we had a chat with Anna, Neokarni, Adna and Taisha and asked them how they think things have been going for their teachers since they went back to school in September. Like, bear in mind, like, teachers are also individuals that have gone through lockdown. So they're not allowed to see any of their family members. Like, most of them don't get to see, like, their parents and stuff like that and their family members. So they live alone or with a partner, and that's it. Three of my teachers since September have, like, cried and left the room. No joke. Like, just stressed out, pressured so much so that they were like, excuse me, and they walked out and cried. Um, One of my teachers sat down with me as I asked him, I was like, what's, like, are you okay? And then he was like... I don't get to see my friends. I don't get to see my family. I spend most of the time at school preparing for school. And it's like, it's taken a lot of energy and like time. And to be honest, like it, that's very true. Like it's taken out most of the, most of the time to compensate for these six months. That isn't even their fault. Do you know what I mean? The system is putting so much pressure on teachers and students to perform as if everything was normal, which is just not fair. And it's like, I think it's taken a massive toll on them. So I remember we spoke to the head teacher to try to get a day off for them, and we did. You can see how stressed they are and how much they are trying, but they, I feel like they're trying their absolute best, nothing they can do, and it's really hard on them as much as it's hard on us. And I feel like they're trying their absolute best, but the government's not really, they give anything away, so they can't really do anything, but I feel like they're trying their absolute best. Something um, that I've noticed with a few of my teachers is I think a couple of them struggle with childcare a bit simply because I know some of their kids, if their class gets COVID, then they have like young five-year-old daughters or something at home and then they need to go and teach us but also look after their kids. I feel like maybe for the uh, 12, I guess, if they're still mostly online, it's harder to build a kind of relationship, like a qualitative relationship with a teacher due to being kind of virtually. And I feel like in every class, uh, relationship with the teacher, just uh, even a slight one, just important, you know, to and ensuring that, you know, like, you know, there's a connection there and it helps with learning, you know, if you respect them more, you're more likely to listen, stuff like that. It just works both ways because if the teacher feels like they're being listened, they work harder, stuff like that. I know my school, I'm not sure about any other school, like um, teachers don't have staff rooms anymore, so like, the staff rooms are like, taken over. So being by yourself, like new teachers especially, because new teachers, they come into new school and they only can meet people in like, their own environment and like, their own um, subjects, so not being like, feeling like isolated maybe, so like, not the gap, so it might be very struggle on them. Okay, so it does seem that there's been an impact on the mental health and well-being of teachers and and perhaps non-teaching school staff during the pandemic. And there's a sense that the current workload and the current pressures and pressures and demands on school staff may be unsustainable. So the most important question then is what needs to change? If I had a magic wand, I would take some of the heat out of accountability for results. I don't think it's productive for children or for the adults uh, in the school. Obviously, we want children and young people to learn and be productive members of society, but it depends what we're considering productivity. 
I'd like more of a focus on health as a whole and understanding that mental health sits within health, that in the same way that if you eat a healthy diet, you're looking after your body, that if you maintain healthy routines, you are looking after your mental health. And I would like to see that embedded at school for the adults and for the young people. We can't teach what we don't do, really. I would generally like a whole shake-up of the system. That focus on relationships is really where I would go. Everything else falls out of that. Even in Scotland, where the government are supporting with funding for the adults in school, for their mental health, there's a feeling of needing permission to actually take that time. I think there is something about what, you know, the the work dynamic of an employer and a, a, an employee, even when you're the head teacher, there needs to be something policy-led around prioritising teachers' mental health because all of the messaging that they get is you have to do this for the children or they can't do it for the children if they're not in a grounded place to do it from. There's an element from a non-teaching side. It's a requirement now that non-teaching get regular supervision that is a must something I'm actually trying to really drive home in education it's a must it can't be within the team it has to be external because essentially all you're doing is passing how you emotionally feel around so it has to be external that has to be a given as I said it's I think 2019 came into guidance but it doesn't specify that it needs to be external and it doesn't specify that it needs to be regular And I think for staff, I think there's a lot of emphasis right now in terms of people being trained on mental health first aid, which I am, um, all externally, um, didn't get done by doing it from school. I think we need real advocates that are not afraid to really talk about what well-being, you know, is and the impact it's having on staff. So looking forward to the future, I think um, a couple of things would be really beneficial, that the Department for Education genuinely engaged not just with school leaders but with the teachers who are going to be doing the teaching that the school leaders engage with the teachers in their schools as well um, about what we feel is going to be helpful what we feel we need that our fears are recognized we all have families whether they be children or partners or, or or parents whatever it be There are many uh, teachers afraid of catching COVID. Get them vaccinated. Don't do the one vaccine. Get them vaccinated with their two vaccines before you get them into school. The other thing is, I think we need to accept that the learning is not going to be the same this year. I think that's been patently obvious um, right since March. Yes, we can do things, but don't put that pressure on for absolutely every single lesson to be the same as if you were in the classroom. And when the students do come back, do they all need to come back at once? Can we think about them coming in on alternate days? Can we think about doing things differently? But most of all, can we ask the teachers? Is there anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to squeeze in? You know what? There's something about the lack of warning that really pisses everyone off. Um, So I'm just going to say... You know what, I think you can ask any teacher to help any student or one of their colleagues and they'll do it willingly um, and they'll give it their very best shot. But the government needs to stop dropping us in it at the last minute with no warning. 
And that's what we got last Christmas. We got that last Christmas. We got it last March. We got it with testing in schools and, you know, absolutely gobsmacking to hear that they had put all of that in place without even getting permission or the authorization to do it. My heavens, somebody needs to offstay Gavin Williamson. And it's not just Caroline who's feeling frustrated about the lack of involvement of teachers in decision making by the government and the last minute decisions that are being imposed on schools. A lot of what Caroline said is coming out in Lisa's research as well. One of the things that teachers have been telling us all throughout the interviews is that they want more collaborative and um, consultative communication line between the government and the education community. So um, something that teachers have been said, uh, saying to us is that they, things are asked of them in a very short period of time and they are told these things at the same time as a public. What they would like, um, and that would be a way for the government to show value for the profession, is that um, these communications happen prior to public announcements, being able to then discuss whether these strategies or these plans are feasible on ground. And that will not only be beneficial for the government in trying to understand whether these plans are feasible and practical, but also teachers then can have a say of what happens to their workplace and their profession. So that is one, more collaborative communication. Another implication could be we need to ensure greater accessibility to sources of social support. So social support is an important resource um, that helps teachers' mental health and well-being. And to ensure that there are resources that, that are accessible for them to use, especially SLTs, that will be something I think will be beneficial for teachers um, who are you know, in this profession, and it's a hard job. It's a hard profession, which they can um, access now and also into the future. I do worry about burnout and what that means for the whole profession because um, teachers leaving the profession can affect so many things. Um, student achievement, of course, because that's what people think about, but also student well-being, you know, um, the school climate, the whole educational system is really, you know, teachers are the social fabric of the educational system. So we need to support them when we can. Okay, thanks very much, Lisa. And is there anything else that you would like to add? Yeah, I want to thank teachers. Teachers, uh, you are a valuable profession. And thank you for what you do and for being a teacher, especially during this time. So I guess for me, the three things that stood out most from these conversations are, one, that school staff need space and they need to know that their well-being is important. It's a priority and they need to truly believe that that is the case. Two, that the demands on teachers and what we're expecting of schools and school staff at the moment needs to be in line with what they can realistically and reasonably deliver in these circumstances. And three, that there needs to be an effort from government to involve teachers and school staff in decision-making and policy when it comes to schools and education during the pandemic. And any major decisions that are made need to be taken earlier for schools to be given more warning. Now, of course, most of what we talked about in this episode is based on um, the experiences and reflections of just a small number of people um, and may not reflect wider opinions among school staff. Is this a widespread issue? I'd be surprised if it wasn't. But beyond the bit of research by education support that Sarah told us about earlier, 
and some qualitative work that was done in Leeds in the first national lockdown, which incidentally also backs up Caroline's earlier point about teachers being frustrated at not being involved in decision-making by the government. There isn't, beyond those things, and as far as I'm aware, much empirical information or research out there about the impacts of the pandemic on teachers and school staff in this country. So I'd be keen to hear from any teachers and non-teaching school staff listening to this episode. Is this the norm? Are school staff struggling more than necessary at the moment? Is it sustainable and what needs to change? Our Twitter handle and email address are on the podcast homepage, so please do get in touch. And I'll finish by posing a question to the research community. Is there anything that you and your team could be doing to help support schools in your local area? School staff support young people with loads of stuff beyond the curriculum and often we as researchers and educators are in a great position to be able to support them with some of this. Could you offer work experience placements or support young people with UCAS applications, personal statements or extended projects? Do you have any spare laptops, tablets or other devices or perhaps leftover gift vouchers from previous field work that your team have done? Or could you offer extracurricular activities for young people, which it didn't come through in this episode, we can fit it all in, but um, it's something that young people are telling us that they're missing, the stuff beyond the curriculum that they normally would have access to. So maybe have a think about it. Thanks for listening and a special thanks to Sarah, Caroline, Gemma, Lisa, Adna, Taisha, Nia Carney and Anna for taking the time to speak with me. The episode could actually have been around three hours long with everything that everyone had to say on this issue Um, and it's definitely been a challenge trying to squeeze it all into 40 minutes. I hope we've done it justice um, but no doubt there are lots of things that could have come through here that haven't made it. You've been listening to Our Six Society. The presenter was Gemma Knowles. Production support was provided by Verity Buckley and Sally Marlowe. The producer was Buddy Peace. Our Six Society is funded by King's College London's ESRC Impact Acceleration Account.